Hello, welcome to a special edition of the Oxford Research Group podcast, where we look back at the history of Oxford Research Group. I'm Alistair Mackay, Senior Editor at Oxford Research Group, and I'll be joined by Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. In this special series of podcasts, we talk to people involved in Oxford Research Group development and evolution in its early days. Today, we'll be joined by Silla Elworthy, who founded ORG in 1982 and was its Executive Director until 2003. After ORG, Silla founded Peace Direct and undertook extensive research into peace and security. Her most recent book is The Business Plan for Peace, Building a World Without War. In this episode, we discuss the founding of ORG, how its ideals have defined Silla's subsequent work, and her most recent project on the business plan for peace. Enjoy the show. Okay, so thank you to Dr. Silla Elworthy for joining us in the latest of a series of podcasts speaking to the people that developed and ran ORG in its early days. So before we get to you setting up ORG, Silla, it would be great to hear what you were doing before. Well, as I said to you, Abigail, if I can remember back that far, uh, what I was doing was basically working for uh, United Nations, and they had asked, um, it was through UNESCO, and they asked me to do a research project on the role of women in peace research and the prevention of conflict, about which I knew absolutely nothing in those days. And so I went um, to a conference and found out about it from uh, eight of the most brilliant female peace uh, researchers and peace builders uh, that I've ever met. Uh, Elise Bolding in the States, who is now deceased, but she was my mentor for many years. And um, people like Betty Reardon. So I had a wonderful introduction. I was very, very lucky. And I think if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have really started to get interested in how decisions are made on nuclear weapons. Excellent. So moving slightly forward to the beginnings of Oxford Research Group, which was in 1982. Why was Oxford Research Group established and what, why did you think it was necessary at the time? And what was the key goal in establishing an organisation like Oxford Research Group? Well, I became aware in the early 80s um, of the, the fact that people were deeply, lots of the public were deeply disturbed about nuclear weapons, but the government wasn't taking any notice whatsoever of protests and and I helped organize a mother's walk in Oxford on nuclear disarmament and it achieved really nothing. And so I was started to ask myself, well, who does make decisions on these issues? And as it happened, I was in New York at the time of the United Nations second special session on disarmament, on nuclear disarmament, in 1982 and I was helping to organize all the NGOs who were there and the conference went on uh, and after the first two weeks nothing had been achieved and I was really um, depressed thinking you know why can't the UN do something about this and I was strap hanging on a tram on Broadway and very downhearted and a voice in my head said you're talking to the wrong people Uh, and I thought what and it said yeah you've got to find out who does actually make decisions on nuclear weapons 
And I thought to myself, well, who's that? And then it sort of tumbled into my mind. It must be the nuclear physicists who designed the warheads. It must be the um, people who, ad to, who administer and sign the checks for in the Ministry of Defense. It must be the military who designed the strategy. It must be the intelligence people who provide the rationale for having new weapons. And um, finally, the politicians. And it seemed obvious to find out how the whole system worked. So I got on a plane, came home, gave up what I was doing in New York and set up a research group around my kitchen table. Uh, I still have that kitchen table, actually. And literally three of us, none of us knew anything about nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons decision making. Uh, and we started off as complete amateurs. And then I had the good fortune to go to Bradford University to uh, talk to Professor Paul Rogers, thinking that he would say, you know, you're crazy, like everybody else said. Um, and he didn't. He said, that's a very good idea. Nobody's done that. What a good, what a good proposal. Uh, and he said, what are you going to call it? And I was then thinking of all kind of trendy names for our organization. And he said, no, 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 none of that. Call it, call it something very serious like Oxford Research Group. So I thought, that's a good idea. So we did. And Paul Rogers has been a friend and a mentor ever since. So that's, that's why it was set up. And we had no idea what it would achieve, but the main idea was to have um, some kind of map or idea of how nuclear weapons decision-making worked. I just want to jump in and because one of the things that was really innovative about what Oxford Research Group did in the early days, and you, you mentioned the, the mapping of the different actors involved, it was, it seemed to me an attempt to democratise what was a very closed door decision making process and it's it's been something that's been a thread that's run through the rest of org's work in the years we then tried to democratize and think who was making decisions about special forces i'd i'd quite like to to get in at first about why you thought that the why you thought there was the need to democratize decisions around um nuclear decision making and why you thought it was so important to map who was making the key decisions? Well, it was perfectly clear from the press and the media that there was really no serious dis discussion on nuclear decisions. We were preparing at that time to scale up our capacity very considerably with Trident. And um, there was really no informed discussion at all. And I was very shocked that it was kind of like a holy of holies that people didn't dare talk about. And that's why I thought it's going to be essential for us to make a clear map of how decision-making works. And so for the first four years, what we did was simply straightforward research. And in 1986, we published the first book, which was called, surprise, surprise, how nuclear weapons decisions are made. 
And it was published in my maiden name, actually, Asilla McLean, but it was Macmillan who published it. They were very serious publishers, and so it was taken seriously. And it was pounced on, actually, by a lot of people in ministries of defense, I finally found out, worldwide, who didn't know how the system worked. And here, for the first time, were organigrams, were wiring diagrams of how each country's intelligence agents related to the nuclear physicists designing the warheads, how the warhead designers related to the people uh, working out the strategy, and then they related to the people designing the platforms, the missiles and the um, and the uh, warships and the um, nuclear destroyers and so forth, that um, would be able to make this system work. And it was the first time that anybody had put together um, a, a competent and informative map, not just for our own country, but for France, the United States, the then Soviet Union, and China. And everybody said when, well, I thought, we'll start with China. They said, you're mad. You'll never be able to find out how this works in China. And I said, well, let's try. And I was sitting in the library of the IISS, the Institute for Security Studies in London, and I looked up at the library shelves, and there I saw two very slim A4 folders, and on them was written, nuclear weapons policy making in China. And I thought, I can't believe this. And it was a Chinese publication translated into English by the CIA, but it was on the open shelves. And I, I immediately seized it and photocopied it. And it was able to at least give us a start for finding out how the system worked in China. And then in 1985, I was at um, a, a nuclear conference in Geneva, and I actually met the man who was the organizer of the Chinese People's Association for Peace and Disarmament. And we got talking, and I invited him to Oxford. He came and stayed at our house in Oxford, and uh, we took him cycle riding all around the town with our kids, and he became a real friend. And he invited us to Beijing, and there we met quite senior people in the Chinese setup who were quite willing to talk to us, to my amazement. Um, my Chinese wasn't very good at the time, but um, it led to us inviting a, de a delegation of Chinese to come to Oxford. We took them to see the changing of the guard in London, which they loved, and we organized a public meeting at, I think it was at St. Anthony's College, it was, where they had a terrific interaction with their counterparts from the UK, from the Ministry of Defense. And that's how the whole thing really got underway. I'd imagine that any of that happening now. And I, I think what I like most about your your work and the the research around the the, the nuclear policy at org with you you charted who the key decision makers were and then you were so focused on building dialogue between the key individuals and between everyone that had a stake in 
in the future of, of nuclear policy. It'd be great to hear a bit more about what what that dialogue looked like and who who was involved and what the process was. Well, at first, um, our idea was to have uh, groups uh, of ordinary people who were like taking part in demonstrations or were concerned about nuclear weapons and for them to each adopt a nuclear weapons policymaker from our own country and from another country as well, that person's counterpart. And their job was to find out as much as they could about what that person's responsibilities were and think hard about getting in touch with them by writing a really well-informed letter requesting a discussion. And, uh, of course, decision-makers were completely unaccustomed to this kind of approach from a member of the public. And most of those requests went unanswered. But we really encouraged people to keep on being very much more articulate and repeating their requests. And actually what we learned afterwards was that one of the groups doing this, who were a group of actors in London actually, who had done deep research on the role of the chief of the defence staff in the Ministry of Defence and written him very, very articulate letters. All they ever got in reply was um, a two-line response from his aide which says your letter has been noted. Um, and that was all they got back. But they went on for four years, continuing every three or four months, they would write another highly informed letter. And when the chief of defense staff was retired and moved to the House of Lords, he made a speech. He made his maiden speech in the House of Lords, which was verbatim from their letters. And they were stunned and they wrote to him again and said, we can't believe that you didn't reply to us all this time if you were reading what we wrote. And he said, I couldn't because I was a member of Her Majesty's Armed Forces and it wouldn't have been proper for me to enter a dialogue about nuclear policy. But now that I'm in the House of Lords, I can do that. And so he said, would you, would you like to meet me? And, invited them to the House of Lords for a glass of sherry. And that was the kind of thing that happened uh, in the very early days. These was, this was probably 1986, 87. And at that time, uh, I was working with a group of women trying to democratize what was happening in NATO on nuclear decision making. And we did something very similar. We invited women leaders, women political leaders from different European countries to make an appointment with their national representative at NATO. That was their ambassador, uh, their civil ambassador and the military um, leader of their country at NATO. And they were able, in some cases, to make an appointment to come and see those people on a particular day. And we also arranged for these women's counterpart from Eastern Europe to come to Brussels, to NATO at the same time. So a woman from France, for example, going to see her representatives at NATO in the headquarters would be accompanied by, say, the Speaker of the Bulgarian Parliament. 
And that was revolutionary because um, it was still Eastern Europe at that time. It was the Warsaw Pact. And nobody from the Warsaw Pact had ever been across the threshold of NATO headquarters before that. And these were women, all women. So it, I think Mrs. Thatcher was the only woman beside the cleaners who had ever crossed the threshold of NATO. And um, so, uh, and these meetings that they had were absolutely stunning. And after people had met their representatives, we all gathered in one room and um, the Secretary General of NATO, who was at that time Lord Carrington, came in and spoke to us. And at one point in that discussion, he said, somebody asked him a very interesting question. He said, you young women who know nothing about war, I can't answer that. Um, <laughs> it was that kind of atmosphere that we were up against. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because it seems like, <clears throat> as mentioned before, a lot of the common threads that have gone through OIG is this idea of getting people into the room in the very scenario that described who might not normally be in the same space as one another and actually talking and actually extending views. And I think it speaks a lot to the idea of how powerful dialogue can be as a tool of both not simply just making those introductions, but also moving things forward. But why, why do you think dialogue is such an important tool for, for people working in this sector? Oh, I think it's vital, um, partly because around that time I became a, a Quaker, a member of the Society of Friends, and I was fortunate to be mentored by Adam Cole, who had been the first professor of peace studies at Bradford. And he taught me about speaking truth to power, which is a very um, key notion of the Quakers. And so it, it was important, very important to me that policymakers should listen to well-informed members of the public who had a genuine concern. And so we had to work a lot to make sure that those dialogues were reasoned and calm uh, and that people dealt with their own anger about these issues before they entered into such a dialogue. And that was when we started the Charney Manor dialogues where we invited very senior members of the U.S. administration, um, the Pentagon, the opposite numbers from the Kremlin and from the forces, the, the generals actually in charge of nuclear weapons from the then Soviet Union. This would have been 1988, I think. We were able to... First of all, they wouldn't come. They were too suspicious. And then we said, listen, there'll be no press there. There'll be not even a communique. There won't even be a, an official list of participants because we want to be all off the record. And you can be confident that nobody will even know that you've come. So it was completely deniable. And that was why they did eventually agree to come. And we had uh, incredible meetings with top people from the State Department, from um, from the Department of Defense and their equivalents from France and and from China. And what became really interesting for them was that we were able to lead, I think, altogether seven delegations to Beijing. Um, and this meant that 
very senior members, members of the armed forces here could come on those delegations and meet their opposite numbers in Beijing. So we had with us um, a three-star general, Admiral Richard Cobbold, who was at that time the director of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, um, a, um, uh, an air vice marshal and the head of German military intelligence were on one of our delegations. So we had very senior people. And because the Chinese are so protocol um, savvy, they obviously had to return the compliment and bring into the discussions equally senior members of their military. And at one meeting, me and my delegation were on one side of the table. I think there was a seven or eight of us. Oh, and somebody from the Ministry of Defense Nuclear Decisions Department as well. Um, and across from us at the other side of the table was the second head of the entire Chinese army, then four million men and some women, and seven of his generals. So the word got around very quickly that we were able to connect senior people in Western countries with their opposite numbers in both the then Soviet Union and China. So fascinating to learn this sort of stuff. And talking um, on the subject of the military, it's very interesting what you're saying, because I think when we were doing research on things like remote warfare, as Abby will attest to, what we started realizing was that remote warfare is very much something where we have to get the military to the table to discuss this because it's an issue that affects all kinds of um, people, the military included, and that in order to lobby for a change of this practice, we need to get them talking in the same room with us. One of the things that's very curious with us was the fact that we did have problems initially getting the military to the table and, and making those first kind of steps. I'm wondering, what was your sort of experience of just getting their attention and, you know, did you have to kind of change your sort of language and how you engage with them over time? I did it from the very beginning because if you used the wrong language at first, you wouldn't get past the first letter or the first phone call. So um, we all had to learn to, first of all, to be um, respectful um, of their language um, and not, not to use jargon unnecessarily ourselves, but also to enter into the kind of issues that they faced, not just that we wanted answers to. So we always tried to start with an issue that was uppermost from them that we knew was important to them from their briefs, for example. Um, so that was, that was um, one of the ways. And the other was to do the research properly. We, we published a little booklet that we issued to all the groups who were doing this work. And it was, a, I think, a 10-stage um, training project for them to prepare themselves to have this kind of dialogue. And that included that they should be willing to do their research properly. Because if you, if you hadn't done your homework, you wouldn't get past the first sentence of a meeting. You wouldn't even have a meeting. Yeah, I found that in my own meetings with the military, where it's a bit of an acronym off in the first five minutes before they take you seriously. Exactly. You're quite right. <laughs> I wanted to just, we talk about the nuclear issue, which was something that that, that was high on the mainstream political agenda, agenda that people were talking about a lot. 
And Alistair mentioned remote warfare, which is what I look at, which is where small groups of forces are deployed in in small numbers. And there's some sometimes a temptation for us to consider these types of warfare as for over there, and they don't get onto the mainstream agenda as much. And I think that's where the other side of your work is especially important. So I saw that you've you've engaged with 350 local initiatives to build around the world. And I think in terms of understanding how to build, how to achieve locally driven peace, it's something that we talk about a lot, but then tends to not be championed in implementation as much as it is in rhetoric. And I'm interested to hear more about your own work in in supporting those initiatives and how we can do it more and mean it as well as say it's a good initiative. Thank you. I, I agree with you on the importance. But at that time, um, and I'm talking now 2001, 2002, around the time that I handed over Oxford Research Group to others who, who were very competent to lead it forward. Uh, because exactly as you say, I had noticed the importance of locally led initiatives to build peace. And nobody knew much about that. And so I recruited a researcher from Sussex University and asked him to find out how many reputable, effective, reliable locally led initiatives there were in areas of hot conflict all around the world. And I sent him off for a year. Well, he did it all from his flat in London. Um, and there wasn't even much internet at that time. It was amazing how he did it. He was able to identify, I think it was initially 250 uh, reliable, answerable, uh, locally led initiatives all over the world. I mean, everywhere from DR Congo right through to Colombia, right through to Sri Lanka and so forth. And on that basis, I realized that they, A, they hadn't got very much support, if any. B, they didn't have any press coverage, which actually made them safer when they did get it. And C, they weren't getting very much training. So I, I set up Peace Direct at that time to do exist exactly this and to try to assemble a, a bit of money to do training and press and press training and coverage. And the groups themselves were brilliant because they said, quite rightly, don't send people out from the UK to train us. We know what we're doing, but we just need to know what our colleagues are doing and swap opinions and practices. And so what, what we did was to offer them literally bus fare and sandwich money to travel to and meet with their colleagues. So they might have to travel a hundred miles or something to get together for a week with six other peace groups and become more proficient, more professional and more effective by learning from each other. So, and that, that was the time when we published that first book called War Prevention Works. And that had 50 case studies in it. I'm really keen on case studies. Um, and each of those case studies had one page and it was full color. And each case study said, 
how much it had cost so far, how many lives it was thought to have saved, how many injured people it had assisted, and how much dialogue that initiative had managed to arrange. And that uh, it sold out almost immediately. And I don't, I, I think I have one copy left of that book. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, very much so. And it, I think it's especially interesting because so now at Safe World, they've got the Security Policy Alternatives Network. Yeah. And that, that's based on this same idea that there's an assumption that a Western ad, a Western NGO should go and teach communities how to advocate or how to research. And they already know they just lack the 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 funding or they they need to speak to people that are working within similar contexts. Yeah, it's it's crazy that we're we're learning that again and you you'd already discovered it so long ago. Well I think everybody everybody needs to learn it in their ways and there's much, much, much more information available everywhere. Much thanks to the efforts of Safer World and International Alert and Conciliation Resources and others. Um, there's much more information available now on locally led. And I'm sure you know the website Peace Insight that Peace Direct runs, which maps all the locally led initiatives worldwide now, even in the United States. Because um, on this subject of sort of the website and, and the power of communication, one of the things that's been a very um, stable kind of aspect of OG's work over the past, or I'd say maybe 17, 20 years has been Paul Rogers' uh, briefings, which are designed to provide information on all manner of topics related to global security to, I suppose, a more lay audience as a very or a more curious um, public audience. But going back to the beginning of those briefings, one of the ones that you were actually involved in was um, a series, I think, in 2003, when it was roughly getting into the, the early stages of the war on terror, but really it was talking about when Iraq was very much on the horizon and we were about to sort of embark on that. And at the time you and Paul warned that this approach is probably not going to work very well and that it, not only that, but it will actually start what we probably describe as a, a cycle of violence or a, or a circle of violence that so would be very difficult to resolve. When you saw that happen and those things play out, what were your feelings? absolute exasperation that they had not applied any kind of common sense or even strategic thinking to what they were provoking by this heavily militarized response. Um, It was, um, I think it was driven by, certainly not by any kind of um, informed thinking in any of their excellent institutes. I think it was driven by the military industry, frankly. Uh, it, was, it was an opportunity for an absolute bonanza of uh, weapons production, which always drives um, a military response to conflict in some way or another. And this was just one particular uh, instance of that. It, was, it didn't surprise us, Paul and me, but we... we I think it was actually quite close to 9-11 that we wrote that, I think quite soon after 9-11. And because we could anticipate it, having watched what happened in previous lesser terrorist attacks. Um, But it was, um, 
it was extremely sad and the beginning of, as we know now, an absolutely um, not just useless, but very provocative and inflammatory series of uh, an, an unending war, really, effectively, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan um, that has created nothing but more conflict and more misery and more deaths and more terror. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was what we predicted. And as you say, when it came to fruition, um, it was um, it was exasperating. I think that leads quite nicely onto your most recent project. The as well as the cost in stability and peace and lives, I think the war on terror is estimated to have cost more than one trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's interesting that your next approach which was the, the business plan for peace, which builds on your extensive experience in all of these areas to say, how could we build a strategy for peace? And one of your key arguments is peace costs less money. I think, I think that's just a really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's become obvious to me over, well, four or five decades that I've been working on this kind of thing that, that fortunes that we spend um, in military contracts and through our ministries of defense and the boots on the ground and so forth is so not just unproductive it's counterproductive it provokes more reaction and violence in its turn whereas the funds that are available for meeting the causes of war uh, or for um, working with those in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, even Syria, um, the the efforts that are devoted by, in some cases, the foreign offices of of the major powers, but more particularly by the institutes that you and I are aware of, that very valuable work is underfunded. So what I did in the business plan for peace was to pick 25 examples of uh, initiatives that I know either have worked or could work um, and cost them out to indicate how relatively low cost it is to uh, attend to the causes of violence um, and to apply people-centered remedies or approaches to when violence already exists. And we can give really hundreds of examples of that, but one which is perhaps the mo- one of the most obvious is when the riots broke out in Kenya, in Nairobi particularly, but all over Kenya in 2008-9 elections, um, and there was just an enormous amount of carnage. I think a thousand people lost their lives. And uh, it was locally led peace builders who eventually stepped in and brought that violence to an end. 
And I'll just tell you what they did because it was so remarkable. I knew the woman, uh, Deka Ibrahim Abdi, was an old friend of mine. And when the rioting broke out, she was called by an admiral and the, the Kenyan representatives uh, at the UN, the generals, to come to Nairobi where they had a meeting going on in one of the main hotels. And they said, there's an empty chair here in Dhaka. Come immediately to Nairobi because you got to chair this meeting. And what they did was so innovative and trust a woman to do it. She said, let's get hold of all the members of the Women's Organization of Kenya, send them a text and ask them to look out of their window and tell us what's happening in a text back. When those women did, they got replies from every hot spot of the country and also the cold spots where people were running to. And they were able to map these out on flip charts all around the, uh, the, the hotel room. And that initiative meant that they had more intelligence, more information on what was actually happening in the country than the government of Kenya, which meant that they could apply and alert their committees, their peace committees in cities like Eldoret to put their plan for peace into action um, and bring the violence under control, which they did by the time that Kofi Annan arrived to build the peace agreement. So that's what local people can do um, and how brilliantly they did it entirely without a single weapon, just with some um, a network of, of 60,000 women with cell phones and some flip chart in a hotel room. That's how you do it. It's not always how you do it, but that's one example. It's just fascinating how sort of very, one thing about OG is this idea of doing things kind of on the cheap, very limited resources, and yet having these kind of massive kind of impacts made by very sort of, you know, innovative ideas. Um, but on the, on the work that's being undertaken, one of the things that's been an issue that's probably unfortunately inescapable for NGOs this year has been the dawn of COVID, which has led to a lot of NGOs having to adapt a little bit to what they're doing and how they're approaching things such as peace building. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, a little bit more about how um, the business plan work has been adapting to this episode. Yeah, thank you. Well, the business plan for peace has four initiatives underway at the moment. And they've been less affected because they're, they're just in the planning stages. The first one is to build architectures for peace in fragile states. Uh, and that's modeled on what Mandela did when he came out of jail in 1989. Um, he set up a national peace council with councils right down to village level. And these councils were made up of trusted local people whose job was to develop a peace plan for that area. And as soon as there was an eruption of violence, they put the peace plan into action and basically steered the country through those years from when he came out of jail until 1994 when they had elections without a civil war. And I lived in South Africa for 10 years and, and I feared, like everybody did, that there would be civil war and there would have been were it not for that plan. So we're applying that kind of thinking to, well, Kenya has already passed legislation for such an architecture for peace, and so has Ghana. And we're now opening discussions with other fragile states 
as to how they might build this. It's incredibly low priced. It only costs about two two and a half million dollars to set that up, um, to train the people for the peace committees, um, and to get the thing going. And then about a half a million dollars a year to keep it going. So it's a, it's a very, very viable investment for impact investors. And that's the second initiative that we're busy with, which is to build an impact investment plan for peace. At the moment, you have you have investment um, plans for all sorts of um, many of the different SDGs, but there is almost no uh, considerable investment in SDG 16 for peace. It's uninvestable, thought to be uninvestable. Um, so what we've done is to map 25 um, examples that we know of where investment can be made into an area which is uh, fragile or where there is violence and can show results uh, that would provide an investor with either a reputational dividend or an actual dividend. So it's called an impact bond for peace. Um, and the other things that we're doing is um, very quietly at the moment, talking to ministries of defense in the countries that signed up to the uh, wonderful document called Understand to Prevent. Are you familiar with that, Alistair? It's called U2P for short. It was, it was put together by the militaries of six NATO nations plus Sweden um, about three or four years ago. And it's been a bit buried because it was, it came out at the time of the Crimean invasion by Russia. But it's full of incredibly practical ways in which the military of those countries could be used to prevent violent conflict. And so we're having quiet discussions with those militaries about how they could actually build a budget for the prevention of conflict. Because until you have a budget, you can't get your uh, trained soldiers uh, into action to do prevention, which they're very, very good at. So that's the kind of thing that we're busy with at the moment. And all of that's in its very early stages. So it hasn't affected us too much. What we're doing now to make a bit more income is we've developed a an online course for a book that I wrote just earlier this year called The Mighty Heart, which and the subtitle of it is How to Transform Conflict. And it's landed quite well because I wrote it on the 1st of January this, this year, on the first week of January, and I had no idea that COVID was coming, uh, none at all. But yet it has been seized upon by people who want the skills of dealing with um, disagreements, with tension, with all the stress that COVID has um, aroused and want to know how to exercise these, these skills. Uh, so there are 10 skills in the Mighty Heart training and we've made it into an online course which we're just in the middle of delivering the prototype at the moment but uh, companies and municipalities are now lining up to get that course so that and that can help us with a bit of revenue. That's incredible even in lockdown you've tons of really exciting stuff 
I I want to talk about all of it, but I'm I'm worried that we're running out of time and you are, you have to get off. But maybe maybe it would be nice to finish in this climate and with tensions exacerbated by COVID and mm -hmm. it's seeming like we're entering another Cold War where states are 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 seen as enemies and the space for dialogue seems to be dwindling. It's at this time that ORG, as we all know, is is closing at the end of the year. I'm interested to know what you think, what gap you think that ORG will leave and how we as individuals and peace building organisations more broadly can start to fill that gap. Oh, well, I think I think ORG has done a fabulous job. Really, I've, you know, I've followed the developments in ORG uh, ever since I handed it over. And I'm very, very proud of the um, research that you've all been doing and the way that you've brought people together behind the scenes. And I, I feel it's been, I think, the, the, perhaps the main legacy of ORG is this capacity to locate the issues that are coming up and that matter and get the research done. Secondly, to pursue the idea that uh, decision, makers, decision maker, makers meeting each other under the radar, away from the media, and meeting their interlocutors from the public is invaluable so that they stay in contact with what people actually mind about in the peace-building sphere. That's one thing that I think will be missed, and I very much hope that our sister organizations like um, Safer World and International Alert and Conciliation Resources will carry on developing their work in this area because I think we've all shared skills there. Um, and Peace Direct is absolutely wonderful the way it is developing its work uh, all over the world. And I'm deeply proud of Dylan Matthews and his team. The one thing that I think is going to make the difference in the future is getting more women into policy-making positions. And there are many people working on this, but particularly um, the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy in Berlin that I work closely with. Um, but training women, able women and enabling them to get into the positions that they deserve to be in, in other words, overcoming the bias to appoint a man into a position that's dealing with security or defense, overcoming that bias and realizing that the women ministers of defense that one can identify throughout the world are doing a fabulous job, really a fabulous job. And women and men who share what I would call a yin intelligence, not yang intelligence, but yin intelligence, um, which is available equally to men as it is to women. Those men and women who are working from that, that range of skills, namely being able to think into another person's position, um, to be empathic, to use intuition in decision-making, which is vital, to um, insist on the interconnectedness of nations, how nations depend on one another. I've, I've just finished quite a long, no, it's not long, it's only four pages, on yin intelligence and the components of it, which I can send you if you like. But this is 
the re the obvious reasons why those who think in a new interconnected way in fact it's age old it's not new but it's we've we've buried it recently but to bring to the fore those skills of communication dialogue and human connection in defense decision making is absolutely vital and everything that you can do both of you in your forthcoming positions all the people from org who are moving into other spheres if you can take those skills with you and using your exceptional skills that you have you'll make a real big difference for the future thank you i think it's something we both intend to do very much and i think although we live in very uncertain times it is there are always glimmers of hope and i think some of the organizations that you've listed and some of the approaches that listed suggest that although um that although org is closing in many ways the work does continue and that same kind of ethos is carried on just through different vessels but this is one of those conversations that i wish you go on long but as abby said we are pushing your time but um so it's been wonderful speaking to you and take care it's been lovely thank you so much and um, really wish you the very best and many thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Oxford Research Group is closing at the end of the year. The Remote Warfare Programme has moved to Safer World under the new name of the Security Policy Change Programme. In the new year, this podcast will also be taken over by Safer World. But for now, you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge on the ORG site by following the link at the top of the page. To all our listeners, we wish you a fond farewell from Awaji. Goodbye.